Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Today's historian interview is with Professor Emerson Baker. He's the Interim Dean of Graduate and Professional Studies, as well as a professor of history over at Salem State University. Yes, that Salem. He's an award-winning author with many works on the history and archaeology of early New England, including A Storm of Witchcraft, The Salem Trials, and The American Experience, which was a source for this series, and The Devil of Great Island, Witchcraft and Conflict in Early New England, a great book about a stone-throwing devil in early colonial New Hampshire, something I covered on episode 94 of my other podcast, Lore. He served as an advisor for PBS TV's American Experience and Colonial House, and has consulted and appeared in many documentaries on the Salem Witch Trials. He is a member of the Gallows Hill team, who in 2016 confirmed the execution site for the victims of the Salem Witch Trials. And he's also co-authored the iPhone, iPad app, The Salem Witch Trials. I had a chance to sit down with Professor Baker this past summer, and we had a fantastic conversation. So, without further delay, let's get on with the show. This is the Unobscured Interview Series for Season 1. I'm Aaron Mankey. So I'm Emerson Baker. I'm uh, interim dean and uh, professor of history at uh, Salem State University in Salem, Massachusetts. I'm going to start us off with sort of a um, uh, like setting the stage kind of question. Sure. Um, can you give us a brief placement of the Salem trials in the context of colonial history? You know, we're we're about halfway between English settlement and the independence that'll come later. Um, how do the events in this particular era shape? 
the mindsets, attitudes, the sure. practices that we might consider proto-American. Sure. Well, I mean, it seems to me that Salem is, is kind of that great colonial American tragedy, right? Or one of several great tragedies, maybe King Philip's War being being another one, which sure. which in some ways, I believe they're kind of closely related. Mm-hmm. And that uh, many of the, there'd been many tensions emerging in New England in the 17th century, um, the perceived decline of Puritanism, mm-hmm. um, declining church membership, um, issues over governance and the fall of the Charter of Massachusetts Bay Colony, mm-hmm. um, where people begin to to doubt that that the the Puritan experiment is going to survive, right? That it is under threat, and yeah. who could it be under threat from more than anything else, of course, but but Satan, right? right. And and to me, in many ways, it it is a, a critical turning point in American history. And I'm not just saying that because my book is in a series called Pivotal Moments in American History. I genuinely believe this, that the Salem witch trials in many ways um, changed the course of, of colonial history and uh, and maybe the very nature of American society to this day. I read a quote from, I don't know if he's late late 19th century, early 20th century historian who said that the Salem witch trials was the rock that um, theocracy, the like the American idea of theocracy was broken upon. Yeah. Right. I, I, you know, I, I don't think it's not like uh, the, the sort of uh, Puritan state uh, ended with the Salem witch trials, um, but I, I, it's the beginning of the end. Right. Yeah. I think Cotton Mather in particular becomes pretty much completely discredited mm-hmm. by his attempt to defend the Puritan state. Um, and people begin to think, you know, maybe it isn't the best idea for the governor's top advisors to be the ministers of the colony, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it be, it's, it's, a, it's a gradual split. It's not like the light switch went off, right? But I, I think in many ways, it's, it's the Puritan witch trials, uh, the Salem witch trials are the, the beginning uh, of the end yeah. of, of kind of uh, Puritan Massachusetts. And in some ways, really kind of that, that beginning uh, of the end of, of, of the New England experiment. And, and in particular, I think uh, the, the, the complete collapse of that ideal of John Winthrop's of the city upon a hill. Right. And if you realize that Salem, of course, was the first settlement of Massachusetts Bay, and that Winthrop really may have physically had Salem in mind as the city upon the hill, to have those high expectations completely dashed, uh, there were people still living in Salem who would have heard that sermon, right? Mm -hmm. They would have been quite old, but to think within a couple of generations that that, that, that experiment just, just lay in, in, in shambles. And I think to me, that's why, that's why we remember Salem is because um, we, it, it's, it's too horrible a fall from grace for us to ever forget. Mm-hmm. And that people in Salem and other Americans um, constantly remind Salem and ourselves of, of what can happen when you, you get complacent about those dreams. For sure. Obviously, witchcraft, accusals, trials, executions, all that. We, we're, we're talking about the New World, Europe, England. Um, and there's a lot of different sects of the Christian faith represented mm-hmm, there. You've mm-hmm. got Catholicism and Anglicanism. Mm-hmm. Specifically in Puritan New England and in Salem in 1692, what was a witch? <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, it's a, it's, it really goes back to, to, to the Old Testament, really, um, and, you know, as to, to what a, a witch is. Um, it's someone who is in league with, with Satan and draws uh, power, powers from Satan to, to harm people or to, to harm their possessions, mm-hmm. right? Simply, simply put. Um, it, and it, it, can be, it can be done in, in a variety of, of different ways. It doesn't have to be what we sort of think of even in Salem of sort of um, affliction and, and spectral affliction. Uh, it can be... Um, it be causing uh, uh, storms to wreck crops. It can be causing uh, 
to uh, cows to dry up and no longer produce milk, or it, yes, it can be direct harm to people. Right. Obviously, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was part of the greater British Empire. Yeah. Um, how connected was the colony, specifically Salem? As you said, it was the first settlement, not Boston, but Salem was. So how connected was it to the global network that made up that British Empire? So what's really interesting to me is is actually uh, Massachusetts joins the British Empire in many ways only with the new charter of 1691 with the arrival of Governor Phipps in Mm -hmm. Boston in May of 1692 amid the witch trials. He's the first royal governor. And uh, I think in many ways, uh, before his arrival uh, and before um, the, the loss of the, of the Massachusetts Bay Charter in uh, the 1680s, um, Massachusetts, I think, had considered himself in many ways a law apart. Um, they, they tended to flaunt and ignore as many of the English laws as possible. And I think part of the crisis over the Salem witch trials is uh, this process of becoming a part of the British imperial system. Now, I don't mean to say that they're completely isolated, because they're not. Right. And I think the thing that we tend to, we really uh, don't realize just how well connected they were with Europe. Uh, and in fact, throughout the Atlantic world, that there's a vibrant Atlantic economy, that uh, it, it may take as little as four or five weeks for a ship to arrive from London, if all goes well, and that people are reading the, the London newspapers and, and things over here. So... As they're they're pretty much in tune with what's going on over there, but that doesn't mean that they're in that sense. Um, Massachusetts folk, I think, believe themselves as a part of this Puritan state that was in some ways, yes, we are Englishmen, we are all Englishmen, um, but we're 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 really here for other purposes mm-hmm. than those other folks. And this this sort of growing idea of empire, I think, is something that troubles them in some ways. Interesting. Yeah, they seem to be driven across the Atlantic to do things their way. Right. And it's, I didn't understand, but I'm learning that they had free reign to pretty much do it their way for a very long time. Right. And in fact, actually um, realized, too, that in some ways Massachusetts becomes its own imperial power in the mid-17th century. Um, with the problems, of course, in England at the time, it's the English Civil Wars are taking place throughout the 1630s and, and into the 16, um, 1640s. And what that means is... Uh, you have no one over in England in authority to really sort of stop the Puritans from in Massachusetts from expanding authority. They in the 1640s they extended their authority to New Hampshire. In the 1650s they largely take over Maine. These are Anglican royalist colonies, but in Massachusetts you have the Puritan government, which is closely allied with Oliver Cromwell and the the victorious Puritan forces in England, mm-hmm. and so they're they're given pretty much free reign to to dominate New England, and it's only after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 that uh, the, the Stuarts begin to say, "Wait a second, we have to reel you back in here uh, a little bit here." Uh, and it's, it's all it's a, you know this to me is like Salem is a, it's all part of a much larger, more complicated story, and to me. Why I find it so fascinating, because I think this time period in the late 17th century, there are so many interesting things going on, and they all, in some ways, uh, some of the, so many of them come to a head in the form of the Salem witch trials. So many people say, well, let's talk about Salem, but they don't talk about King Philip's War or the English Civil War um, and all the different factors that are, there are all these different wires that are tripping that are causing this one thing to right. happen. Well, and it's why you call your book a storm, right? Because exactly. it is a perfect storm. Exactly. I really try to equate it to that other great Essex County tragedy, the perfect storm, right? Where it, it takes a, a confluence of a number of horrible things come, to come together to create, which was, you know... Um, off the chart, the largest uh, uh, witchcraft prosecution in, in American history. Uh, you know, where you have uh, nineteen people executed, one pressed to death, five more die in prison, 
over 160 people accused, uh, and and maybe a lot more than that. And uh, I, I think, um, you know, if you look at most other cases, aside from the Hartford outbreak, which it's really on the order of like nine or 10 kind of folks, um, most cases, there's only one or two, three people that are accused yeah. of witchcraft. So clearly, there's something weird going on. But on the other hand, too, is in, in defense of, 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 of Salem, um, I, I'm also fascinated with the reason I wrote the book was, why are we so fascinated with this? Why Salem? Because by European standards, Salem, unfortunately, is a fly speck. You know, in the great age of witch hunts over several hundred years in Europe, we know that about 100,000 people were prosecuted and about half of them were executed for witchcraft. You know, in, 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 in Cologne, Germany, there was a 10-year witchcraft outbreak from the 1620s to the 1630s where hundreds and hundreds of people lost their lives. And I've been, I don't know if you've ever been to Cologne. It's a beautiful city, but no one calls it the witch city. So, and you know, uh, why is it that, that, that Salem, right, is the witch city? So, and again, to me, I think it's, a lot of it has to do with this confluence of, of things coming together in this supposedly utopian Puritan place, and um, that we're, we're sort of living, still living in many ways in the aftermath of that, right? Absolutely. Right. Well, let's step back just a little bit sure. before the, yes, the, yes. the witchcraft starts. Yep. And back to that idea of the, of the British Empire and this, yep. this global network. Yep. Um, slavery was obviously part of this. Sure. Uh, can you talk about slavery and what it was like in 1690s New England? Sure. Um, and uh, Slavery is New England's dirty little secret, first off, right? Okay. Um, and we know that as early as the as the 1630s, that we have the first sort of documented evidence uh, of, of slaves coming into Massachusetts. So not longer after after the colony starts, slaves come in as well. Um, and they tend to be, they're, they're not a, a large presence in the, in the colony. Um, you know, we don't have a plantation economy, um, but we do, we do need people to, you know, work the docks and places like, you know, and the lumber mills and and working the, working the, the, the crops. Um, they do become sort of a, in some ways, a, a almost like a status symbol for um, for the wealthier merchants, I think. And sometimes even, for example, um, Cotton Mather was given a slave by Governor Phipps. <laughs> uh, in this case, where they refer to as a Spanish Indian. So we do have we do have um, um, African slaves here. There is there are also Native Americans who have been enslaved. Some coming uh, from the Caribbean. Um, others who are New England Indians who've been enslaved in, in King Philip's War, the Pequot War. Um, so there certainly is a long tradition in, in, in New England, as there was in Europe, of course, of, 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 uh, of servitude, of slavery, particularly for people who are other. Um, England in the 17th century did not have a well-defined sense of, of um, race. Um, they understand other. Mm-hmm. Um, they understand other being, for example, the Irish are other. Right. And frankly, there's a debate as to Native Americans and the Irish, the English in some ways sort of similar, consider them very similar because they consider them both to be pagan. I, know, I, I apologize, but I mean, this, this was the English, particularly the Puritan view of, of, of Irish Catholics, right? right? Is that these people are, are unchurched, the wild Irish. Um, you know, the Scots may be a little bit better because we share the same king, but they're still a little different from us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a sort of these orders of magnitude of difference. And while you would never enslave an Englishman, um, boy, people who are different from us, you know, we will we'll have a, a, an indentured servant, an Englishman who will serve a term of service, but uh, people have to be radically different to be to be enslaved. So we certainly do have a small percentage of folk here we know in Salem, particularly in the larger ports, Salem and Boston, um, um, owned by the, the leading families who are, are slaves um, by 1692. And of course, um, a few of these, these folks uh, end up being involved in the witch trials. So it must be 
significant then that when Samuel Paris arrives in town, well, not town, the village, right. that he has at least two slaves that we know of in yep. tow with him, that yep. he's... He's, he seems to be a little bit of a, of a, not a pretender, but he has tried <laughs> to make a, a wealthy name for himself. The selling of the plantation, the buying of businesses in Boston, and then coming up north to Salem right. with slaves almost right. feels like driving into town in your, you know, black 5 Series BMW. And I don't know if that's... <laughs> well, well, okay, I have, I have maybe a little different... T- I think you're right. I think he, he sort of has pretensions. Yeah. Um, he was raised... Uh, but I also, I, he was raised in the plantation uh, in Barbados where his... Uh, he inherits an, a fortune from his father and seems to manage to, to wipe it out. We're yeah. not sure how, if it's through uh, mismanagement or uh, some people suggest the plantation was destroyed in uh, tornadoes, hurricanes. Um, but I, I consider, honestly, I consider Samuel Paris to be a professional failure. I think he failed at everything he, he did at life, right? Yeah. He, he, um, he goes, uh, he, he's the son of a, a sugar planter who, who inherits a plantation. That should have guaranteed him to be wealthy forever, right? He goes to Harvard, but after a year or two, he leaves as soon as he hears he's inherited this fortune. And again, you know, who are the leaders of colonial New England, those wealthy, respected people, but the Harvard-trained ministers, right? Then he, then he comes, leaves the Barbados and come back, comes back to Boston and tries to be a merchant. And again, the wealthy, ruling elite of Massachusetts, who are the Salem witchcraft judges? They're all wealthy Boston merchants. Um, he fails at that. He, he can't make a living doing that. So I think in some ways... This guy who never graduated from Harvard, as far as we can tell. Um, Salem Village is his last chance at success. And you're right, he comes in with, with slaves. He comes in with pretensions. Um, he, he is in search for that, that stable, comfortable life and that position in society, which I think is really critical to him. And I think one of the reasons Salem becomes a tragedy is because Paris realizes this is his last chance to succeed, and he's not going to go quietly. He's clutching, right? He, absolutely. It's, he's holding on as long as he can. And, of course, he lasts in the town a number of years, even after the witch trials, when most people are telling him, you know, no, go. We don't yeah. want you here. I, th- I think I think he's obviously he's a fellow who's very very much under stress. He clearly feels that he's being attacked by Satan, yeah. and he, he, this is how his political enemies, I think, in the village, um, become more than political enemies because clearly anybody who tries to oppose me in what I'm trying to do here into establishing the godly kingdom in Salem Village must be in some ways um, influenced by by Satan, and that is again part of the part of the tragedy, right? Mm, definitely. Let's switch to law. Sure. How is Massachusetts colonial law different from English law? Oh, God, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll try to we'll try to explain this without boring too many people and getting too in much detail because it's complicated. Um, Massachusetts law is is based largely on English common law, but again, this whole idea of of Massachusetts not being part of the British Empire um, up until. Massachusetts receives its second charter in 1691, they are allowed to develop whatever laws they want without anyone paying too much attention. But when they get the new charter, and Phipps arrives with it in May of 1692, it very specifically says that Massachusetts, all of Massachusetts laws are now invalid. And um, they, they have to immediately write a new set of laws that sh- uh, shall, shall be in alignment with really and shall not be repugnant with the laws of England, that they'll conform with English common law. And so, again, this is part of that confluence of this. uh, There's only really one year in in Massachusetts history where, in many ways, it doesn't have a full set of of legal books. It doesn't have a working system of courts uh, because they have to recreate a whole justice system as well, too. Instead, they're kind of relying on English common law and, in some degrees, I think, making it up as they go. 
And herein lies part of the tragedy, right? So is this why when... Um on that first day, uh, either the first of March or end of February, when those when those four men walk to Salem Town yep. and they stand before Hawthorne and Corwin and they 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 accuse for the first time, yes, they don't pay that accusational fee, the, right. that the deposit that you're supposed to make. Is that sort of because we're in a in a no rule zone at this point? It's well, I think that's part of it. I think there is um, there are a number of um, legal irregularities that take place in Salem in 1692, and I think and part of them, uh, for example, the it's the only time in uh, I think in American history where it is actually uh, legal to to seize. The, the assets of, of someone who's been accused of felony, right? Mm-hmm. Some of it is, I think, is the, is the lack of an established set of law and things are kind of murky. I, I also think, too, though, what part of it is, is that there is such an assumption of guilt uh, in 1692, unlike anything else, and that that makes people take shortcuts. Um, right, normally you, um, if you, you would have to post bond if you were charging someone with, with a felony like that um, to create, you know, basically what today would call a nuisance suit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or to essentially maybe charge persons for political purposes or a way to get back at them. Um, but the, that, that uh, and then you, if, you, if the case wasn't proven, you'd forfeit your bond. Um, that was, that was a, would have been a substantial inducement to not accuse someone flippantly of a, of a high crime, right? Um, but I, I honestly think, too, if you, um, I think the answer in some degrees comes that uh, if, if you, again, if you look at the sort of building storm cloud, um, where by 1692, um, the judges in Massachusetts, the leaders of the colony, because these also, not only are they your, your judges, they're also your wealthiest merchants, they're also the members of the governor's council, they've been appointed to their offices in the charter by the king, um, they they know that Satan is in their presence, and they've seen that by what's been going on for the past few years, this confluence of, of horrible things, of, of the worst, what we now recognize the worst weather of the Little Ice Age, a terrible war that's gone badly with the French, against the French and the Native Americans, mm-hmm. the, 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 the downfall of Puritanism, or the perceived downfall of Puritanism. Um, I think in 1692, they know, they know that witchcraft is here, and really the judges realize that their job is to round up the witches and, and take care of them. You know, I think the, the judges are an interesting group because um, over half of them had attended Harvard, and Harvard is supposed to be where you go to become a minister. So as young men, they believed that their fate, that God's plan for them was to make them Puritan ministers. Yet somehow along the way, they'd strayed from that path and instead um, found themselves to be the, the wealthiest, most privileged members of the colony. And, I, and I'm... I, I, I'm, I'm don't mean that with too much jest, because I think it probably seriously gnawed at them, because they were all very devout Puritans, and they wondered, I think they wondered what that failing was, why God had changed this path to a path that admittedly, you know, was pretty comfortable, most of us would enjoy, right? But why? And I think in 1692, they found their answer. Uh, and that was that in 1692, the ministers could not save the colony, but the judges could. And this was God's ordained plan, was to put them in a position where they could save the colony. And I think it, it goes back, if you look at those, the next day, after those first charges, when they're when they're when they're um, bringing uh, um, the the three the three accused uh, Titiba and and Sarah Osborne and and uh, Goody Good to uh, account, the first questions they ask by these guys who've been most of them had been uh, judges in court cases for many years were in English justice. It's a pretty fair system. Was then, still is now, right? The first question these judges, experienced judges, face is. How long have you been in league with Satan? Right. 
why do you hurt these children? Um, and, and they might as well ask, and when did you stop beating your husband, right? Um, there's a presumption of guilt there. And if you realize that many of these judges on the witchcraft panel had actually been involved in witchcraft cases before um, that had not convicted people, hmm. um, as recently as four years earlier in 1688, some of these fellows had been involved in a witchcraft case in, in Boston uh, where when the woman pled guilty of witchcraft, the judges would not accept the verdict until a panel of doctors and physicians had interviewed her to make sure that she was of sane mind. So you had that kind of rejection of the notion of, of people being guilty of witchcraft. In 1692, they don't have that compunction at all. They're trying to force testimony out and, uh, and, and conviction out because essentially they realize, look, it, we know Satan's here. Our job is to find out who the witches are and to deal with them, mm -hmm. right? One of those men is John Hawthorne. Yes. But we, in writing the first episode, I wanted to start with William Hawthorne, his father. Sure. And this is a man, William Hawthorne, who uh, contributed to the forming of a lot of those Massachusetts Bay laws, right? Yeah. And, he was, and, and, yeah. and at the time was living in Salem Village. Think about that. Oh, he didn't live in the town. He came into that, but I'm saying originally... His family lived out on Hawthorne Hill. That's where John Hath Hawthorne or Hawthorne would have been born, actually. And it's only, what, like in the 1660s or so when they do move in. Because what happens is Salem becomes this, the mercantile center and we have the beginning of that division of yeah. Salem Town and Salem Village that, that in many ways Boyer and Nissenbaum made, made kind of famous, right? Right. Um, and, and William and his son, John, go into business together at, yes. a, at a young age for John. You have William Hawthorne as sort of this local respected figure. Sure. And the laws go away. You're in this this window of time where it's it's sort of a let's just protect the Puritan ideal here. Yep. And John is a judge. So I, I get that he feels this desire to protect the Puritan mission that they're on. Sure. But do you feel like from the other side that the community looks to him in these moments and says, you're John Hawthorne. Can you help us through this? Sure. I think that's equally true of, of the other judges as well, mm. um, because they, they are um, an interesting group, right? I mean, if you, um, if you look at the nine, um, most of them, again, are, are very experienced and uh, longstanding. Most of them are members of the second generation. Um, you, in, in, in that you also have um, Bartholomew Gedney. Again, uh, he's the colonel. He's a second generation merchant. He's a physician. He's the colonel in charge and command of the Essex County militia. Um, you know, you 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 have um, Jonathan Corwin, who again, um, the Haythorns and Corwins for for two generations. The fathers had been you know served in the legislature together. They had helped make Salem what it was as this as this this uh, bustling shiny seaport, and and uh, they'd been the family traditions of militia officers. By the way, William Haythorn uh, owned uh, through the Pequot War actually owned owned Native American slaves. By the way, just so you know, wow. So there's a history there because all these people who were military leaders at the time and government leaders during the time of the Pequot War were given were given uh, Pequots as slaves. So you mentioned slaves earlier. I just well, and I think that falls <laughs> into the that falls into the idea of the other as well that you yeah. mentioned before. Yeah. I mean, um, Haythorne was was known to uh, abuse and persecute Quakers. You know, Absolutely. Anybody who yes. wasn't Puritan was exactly. another. Yeah, and, and and you see that 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 long history of Salem of this of that tortured, quite literally tortured relationship mm -hmm. with Quakers because uh, again, if you're if you're not one of us, if you're not a Puritan, then then you're against us. And more to the point is. 
what that means is is that you are 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 stopping really the the creation of this godly community of the city upon the hill right mm-hmm. and that the goal of course this I mean, it sounds wonderful. The Puritans want to come here to create this religious experiment. And if you read the Salem Charter, the original Salem Charter of 1629, it's only a couple of sentences long. It basically says, we want to come here and walk hand in hand with each other and with God in fellowship. And and this is supposed to be their whole legal code, <laughs> right? Um, after Roger Williams is banished from Salem as minister, because of course he was the minister here, Everyone seems to think he was in Boston, but he was here, and and all the troubles with the government here. After that, they rewrite the Salem Covenant, and they go on for pages about thou shalt not and thou shalt, right? Um, I, I I think um, they were very much concerned of trying to maintain that orthodoxy, mm. right? And people, good Puritan leaders like Haythorn and Corwin and Gedney and 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 uh, the Stoughton, of course, is the leader of the court, uh, and 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 Samuel Sewell. Uh, all of them are, this is their goal, is to be um, the, the leaders of creating this Puritan state. And in fact, is, is, uh, two years before the witch trials in 1690, many of these men, as members of the governor's council, had uh, passed a motion to, to create a, 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 a day of fasting and, 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 and public reformation and a call for public reformation, um, which basically means, uh, they sp- very specifically say that, you know, there's going to be in shorthand, there's going to be less, less, less singing and dancing and drinking, and more back in the meeting house. And uh, kids will be in schools, and uh, they'll be reading the Bible because that's why we created schools. Um, and it's again, you can imagine talk about division of church and state. Imagine how that would go over in Massachusetts if the legislature tried to do that today. But these people were all afraid that 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 order that they had been seeking, that Puritan state that they've been trying to create, was 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 just in danger of collapse, and that they had to do something. Um, and they actually wrote this order that was proclaimed and read from every pulpit in the colony um, in 1690. Context is key, right? And sure. so you can't answer a question in isolation. You have to reference this. Well, I mean, and honestly, that. not trying to put plugs in for my book, but that's what the reason, one of the, I wrote the book for a couple of reasons. And one was because the, everything I'd, having taught in Salem for over 20 years, the things I was reading about in the books and what I was actually learning didn't, they didn't fit one thing. But also, too, I realized that so many, you can't look at Salem as an isolated incident in 1692. You have to look at it in the broader history of Salem's history, from the Native American village to the fishing village of Namkeeg, to its growth as 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 a great port, and its subsequent history, to really understand and put the witch trials in context, and to just look at Salem Village, as Boyer and Nissenbaum do. Brilliant, brilliant, maybe still the best book on the Salem witch trials. But you can't understand what happened in 1692 if you're only looking at factionalism in Salem Village. Um, you, 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 can't, you can't do it if you're only looking at the issues of witches, as women as witches and gender. Um, you have to pull back, right, and get that, mm-hmm. that view, because all these pieces, they all connect, don't they? Well, and there are pieces that you wouldn't expect to connect. I, I can expect, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think the English Civil War in the decades leading up to the witch trials mm-hmm. in Salem, that's an obvious connection sure. to look at, because it's, it's English. It's 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 adjacent, but but I think what people forget about are things like King Philip's War yep. or King William's, William's War, War. Yep. and what was going on on the frontiers of New England yep. with the Native Americans, with the settlers. Um, how did things like King's Will, King Philip's War um, set the stage for what sure. was happening in Salem? Well, you have to realize that. Um, the Native Americans were considered again by the the Puritans as being kind of. Um, heathen, pardon me, pagan, um, 
And of course, there was an effort underway by some Puritans like John, uh, John Eliot to create sort of English uh, Native American Puritans, right? Yeah. The Praying Indians. Um, and there, there are towns established for that. But for the most part, the, the Puritans are interesting because they try to convert people by example. You know, they're not active proselytizers like the, the, the Jesuit missions are up in, up in Canada. Um, so it's, it's never going to work all that great. Um, but the, the, the bigger problem is um, Native Americans from the beginning are considered, because they're not Christian, um, they're considered in some ways to be in league with Satan from the get-go. And, and for the most part, where do they live? They live out in what the Puritans consider to be the howling wilderness, the frontier, um, uh, what, uh, what you could consider a, a dark corner of Puritan piety. You know, woods are filled, of, filled with, with imps and evil spirits and demons. And so it's very easy to equate, um, you know, King Philip's war with, and, and with his frontier warfare, and even more so King William's war, which comes really, you know, just like a dozen years later uh, and takes place mostly on the frontier of Maine and New Hampshire and northern Essex County. Uh, these, these wild areas filled by Native Americans and to the north, they're French, Catholic, non-Puritan uh, folk who are um, allies of the Pope, the minions of the Pope. So King William's War in particular, when it, when it breaks out in, in Maine in 1688, begins to be seen as this, this, this unholy alliance of the Puritans' horrible enemies, right? The, the, uh, the, the non, non-Catholic uh, uh, Native Americans in league with the, the French Catholics who are the minions of the Pope. And you have these forces who are clearly agents of Satan who are going to destroy the New England experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they lose that, the, when, when they lose that war, uh, it's seen not just as a military defeat, one that creates tremendous burdens on Salem. Uh, the tax rates go through the ceiling. Um, many refugees, people who had come from Essex County uh, and migrated into Maine in the 1680s, are now come back to Salem with nothing but the clothes on their backs. Um, so you have this horrible political situation, economic situation. Um, and imagine this, if you're in Salem Village or Salem, and all of a sudden, who shows up on your doorstep but your sister-in-law and her five hungry kids, and all they have are their clothes on the back, and they're barely escaped from the burning rubble of a town in Maine, a Native American attack. And that oldest kid is an oaf, and he eats like a horse, and I got to find him a job, but he's lazy, and my taxes are going through the roof. People are terrified by what's going on. They're upset and they don't see an end to it. There's no effort by the English to really turn the war around. So um, it is. It is a very. It's just. It's just chaos. And people really think, in many ways, that that, that the that their the experiment is coming to an end. Um, a few years later, um, the Earl of Bellamont in 1699, who's governor, actually after Sir William Phipps, in I think it's about 1699, um, when there's sort of a recess between King William's War. In Queen Anne's War, which won't start for a couple more years, and he, he, he writes a letter home to his wife, and he says, essentially, I may be home soon, <laughs> because if the Native Americans get their acts together, they will drive us into the ocean. And it's funny to me, because, you know, we, we think today of American exceptionalism, and, and, you know, from sea to shining sea, and westward progress and manifest destiny. In the 1690s, people didn't feel that way. By the, by the time this war is over, at the end of this, a couple years after the Salem Witch Trials, no one is, no, no Europeans are living anywhere in New England, um, really north of, uh, really much north of like Portsmouth, New Hampshire, um, and any way to the westward of current 
Interstate 95. The rest of it is no man's land, and they're they're clinging on for dear life. And they've and uh, people who had been living throughout much of the interior of, of southern New England, and uh, there are dozens of settlements in Maine, burnt, destroyed, abandoned, and are we going to be next? And this is the punishment that God is giving us for not being devout enough and not fulfilling our mission and our promise to him. So even this military disaster uh, against this powerful other, right, um, who in previous times you may have enslaved, uh, is coming back to haunt you. Well, and it's in some ways, the news of that conflict is coming into Salem. But like you said, the people from that conflict are walking back into Salem, you know, defeated, broken, with nothing to their name. Exactly. Um, I, it, it's easy. When I was first reading about Sarah Good, for example, sure. here you have a, a, a typical other, right? She's the yeah. outsider. She's poor. They well, live, you know, but again, but comes from a really wealthy, respected family. But, but through life circumstances, maybe a, 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 a you know a husband dying young, right? She and maybe becomes a little addled, distempered. Exactly. Becomes the local beggar woman, really. But, but I look at the way that they treat her, and I think to myself, how how unchristian or uncharitable they were toward her. But when you put it in the perspective of there are other people coming into town with nothing left because they're coming from the frontier, because they're running from these attacks. Um, It's just a constant hammering away at the people of Salem Village. Exactly. And, but I think I will say in this, in Sarah Good's case, I think the, I think in part it may be because I think there's a chance she was a Quaker. She certainly may have had Quaker Mm -hmm. sympathies. Um, Her famous last words, God will give you blood to drink. Minister Noyes says to her on the, uh, right on um, when, when she's facing the noose, she says, you know, basically, come, come, woman, you know, um, you're going to die, but you might as well clear your conscience. Um, and and uh, she says, you know, I, 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 I'm no more witch than you are, and if you kill me, God will give you blood to drink, so take that. And of course, decades later, supposedly Noyes actually died of like a brain aneurysm where supposedly his mouth might have filled with blood, we don't know. But the point is... Um, on the one hand, on, you know, that's actually a, a quote out of Revelation, um, where one of, the, one of the sort of the plagues that will come to the earth is, is the, the waters will turn to blood, and you'll have mm-hmm. to drink it. And um, so on the one hand, when I initially saw that, I thought, wow, Sarah, good. That's pretty good. She's showing, she was showing noise. You know what? I'm a perfectly good Puritan, and here I am facing death, and I'm going to quote scripture to you. But it's more complicated than that, because as it turns out, Back in the early 1660s, when the Massachusetts government is executing Quakers in Boston for simply trying to proselytize the faith, um, uh, an Englishman writes a book uh, about their behaviors and tells the magistrates that they have to stop what they're doing or God will give them blood to drink. So Sarah Good, in that famous quote, was actually not just, it wasn't a biblical quote, she was actually quoting from a Quaker complaint against the magistrates of Massachusetts. So there may be a lot of reasons why Sarah, I'm not, even, I'm not sure she was a Quaker necessarily, but she certainly lived in that part of Salem that was susceptible to where the Quakers lived. Um, so she certainly would have known about them and may have been, uh, might well have even had Quaker sympathies. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> well, you, you know, you, you think about her first examination on March 1st. Where, where they ask, they say, um, you were at, you know, Reverend Paris's house and you were muttering something. What yeah. were you muttering? Right. You know, and she says, well, it was, you know, I was reciting the commandment. Yeah. You know, well, what, which one? Well, yeah. I think it was the Psalms. <laughs> well, recite it for us. You know, and she has trouble with this. It's, yeah. it's a battle. And, and, and it paints this picture that she's this ungodly, um, disinterested, 
non-Puritan woman in a Puritan village. Yeah. But at the end of the day, at the end of her life, yeah. right there at the and, news. And, and again, I think it may too is the fact that, I mean, there, there, there are reference to her being maybe being addled. And I think, you know, today she may have been a person who, you know, had said some, some mental challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly, God knows, if you're into those sort of circumstances, because she's from a, 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 a prosperous wealthy family. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm sure it was, a very, it was a very tough life that she found herself in to not even own a, own a home uh, and to be sort of living in people's barns and, and, and having to go uh, to be from a proud family, to have to go to the minister and basically begging for, for, for a scrap of food for, for you and your, your children. Um, that's, that takes a lot out of you, right? It does. And, 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 and the thing is, too, is, I mean, it, this wasn't that the Puritans were an uncharitable people, because they, they were. But I think they also, this is the time, you know, um, when there begins to be more sort of individual responsibility, right? And that's one of the major thrusts of the 17th century, the kind of the rise of capitalism. And uh, I think that's one of the general tensions that witchcraft is a part of many scholars have pointed to, right? That, mm-hmm. Those sorts of tensions. With, with a... a- an event as big as the Salem Witch Trials, there's a lot of different issues that you yep. can become focused on or you know, build your career on. You, <laughs> you, you seem to know a lot about Governor Phipps. Yes, yeah. I, I co-authored the, the biography of William Phipps, so I probably know more minutia than just about anybody except maybe my co-author, uh, the wonderful John Reed. Somebody has to, though, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Can you give us a short account of the Phipps-led raid in 1690 and then how that set the stage for sure. him as governor? So, um Phipps uh, leads these two failed military expeditions in 1690. Um, he comes back, uh, comes back to the colony, the first American to be knighted by the King of England. No political experience whatsoever. He's a sort of a ship's captain, sort of a, a, a you know tarpaulin kind of fellow, a sea dog. And, but somehow he gets the authority to lead two expeditions against the, to try to turn the tables in this war. The first one against Acadia works reasonably well. So much so, unfortunately, that they say, that works so well, rather than like four or five ships, let's give you a couple thousand men and like 30 ships, and you're going to go invade Canada and make, make it an English colony. Um, sounds good in theory. Uh, and this takes place, and they lead in the fall of 1690, but um, for, for numerous reasons, a bad weather, poor planning, um, frankly, the fortifications of Quebec, it, it fails disastrously. And... Um, um, they lose hundreds of men. They they bring back smallpox with them into the to the harbor when they arrive. They they talk about the dead being stacked, frozen dead being stacked on the ships like cordwood, and they lose hundreds of people. Uh, it almost cost Phipps his, his subsequent military career. But again, it was it was um, it was as, as major sort of uh, blow against the colony. It created financial disaster. It's the first time the col- uh, any colony ever had to create paper money. It pretty much destroyed the Massachusetts economy. And, and, and it was one of those preconditions, again, that created uh, that sort of that, 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 that political, disa- political economic military disaster that only got worse as, as, as time progressed. So when he arrives in Massachusetts as the governor, what would his priorities have been? <laughs> I mean, it sounds like he had a lot of cleanup to do. Well, you know, my, my personal, my, that's, that's true. I think my, my personal feeling is, as I said about William Phipps, is this, this is a guy that has, he's, he's no, has no political experience whatsoever. He's pretty good at commanding a ship. But he's one of these like fortune seekers, and frankly, one of one of his big personal goals would have been to make as much money off the office as possible. Um, and and he's he's all about um, personal 
uh, personal profit and uh, an advancement. And uh, if he can cut a side deal, he can. When he goes to make a treaty with the Native Americans up at Pemaquid to end the war, um, he also manages to get the leading sachem of, the, of, the, of, of Maine, Madakawando, to deed him several thousand acres of Maine land as a part of the treaty. So, <laughs> so when you ask me what his priorities were, I'm sorry if I'm a little... Um, skeptical. I mean, uh, clearly, here's a guy who's dropped into a situation. When he arrives, the jails are already overflowing with, with people accused of witchcraft. Now, back up a bit and realize that the afflictions in Salem really start to take off. Back in January, about the time that Salem Village hears on the same day of two horrible things. And one is the destruction of York, Maine in a raid and the death of the Puritan minister at the hands of the Native Americans. And about the same time, they learned that Governor Phipps is going to be arriving with a new charter. This, this guy who'd been a military disaster, who only had recently become a Puritan and joined the Mathers Church. So people are a little questioning about, you know, so, you know, let's see, people who are rags to riches kind of guy, high risk, high reward, um, who have only had a late conversion to their political cause, um, who are known for their coarse, vulgar language. Um, you know, sometimes those people don't do really good in, as governors, as leaders of our, of our nation, of our state. Um, and, and Phipps, I think, was fairly clearly almost immediately out of his depth, right? He, um, he didn't have that experience. He had never served as a member of the general court. He was a, a boy from Maine, um, which was a kind of a ultimate kind of outsider. And people kind of questioned who he was and what he was doing here. And um, I, I think uh, he also, too, had a, a, a um, I think one of the things he wanted, one of his key goals here was to make sure that he or his wife weren't accused of witchcraft. Because in many ways, they fit uh, to a T, uh, what people thought witches might be. He had made his fortune as a treasure hunter. Treasures are traditionally guarded by demons that you have to charm. And you also, uh, and you also, uh, also too, to find a treasure, you, you have to use divination to try to locate it, which again, you know, things like fortune telling, he'd had his fortune told. So that's kind of questionable. Meanwhile, his wife is barren. They have no children. Witches are considered to be barren, childless, right? Um, she had had a relative up in Maine who had been accused of witchcraft several decades earlier. And instead of having natural children, in 1692, their household consists of Sir William Phipps, Lady Mary Phipps, and their servants consisting of, yes, a slave, probably from, from the Caribbean, um, and also a Native American girl who Phipps, uh, from Maine, who Phipps had taken captive on uh, his raid uh, on, uh, in, in Acadia in 1690, um, who was serving really kind of as a prisoner of war slash servant, who was the daughter of that, by the way, of that Indian sachem she bought, he bought the land from, um, and also a French nobleman, was, was the, the granddaughter of a French nobleman. So she would have been um, half Native American, half French, all Catholic. And so you have these, these sort of people, as, as, as in, in think of this as your faux children in this ungodly household. So to me, you know, it's, it's, it's me, it's, it's really remarkable that, that uh, Lady Mary Phipps isn't accused of witchcraft until the fall, until October 1692. And as soon as that happens, Sir William brings it to an end. And I think that's one of his key factors throughout the trials is I think he wanted to be very hard on, you know, it's like, you don't want to be soft on crime if you're a politician, right? In, 16, in the 1690s, you don't want to be soft on witches as a politician. It's bad for politics, but it's particularly bad because if Phipps had done the right 
thoughtful thing, as many of the ministers, including Cotton Mather, originally arguing for, you know, be careful with this spectral evidence and be careful who you appoint as judge. Phipps wasn't in a political position to do that. If he wasn't fully behind the witch trials, I think he knew that sooner or later, people were going to start saying, so Sir William, why are you being so soft on witches? Could it have anything to do with, oh, maybe some members of your family? How about the fact that both you and your wife's family are, uh, were in the parish uh, parishioners of Reverend George Burroughs up in Falmouth, Maine? You know, George Burroughs, the ringleader the, the, of, of, of Satan on earth here in Massachusetts. I mean, it just goes on and on, the potential connections. And I think, I think Phipps had to be, um, Phipps could not come out against the witch trials until it became clear when his wife and the wife of Increase Mather were accused that, uh, that it was uh, clearly not all these people could be witches, right? How could we have the best people of the colony? How could we have all of these ministers? How could we have all the, all the relatives of ministers? How could we have members of the general court? These people all can't be witches, can they? Are we all witches? Well, you know, that's, that's <laughs> one of the things that, that is so intriguing about the Salem case specifically is that, you know, you go to England and Europe and accused witches fit a very particular profile. Most of the time, sure. you know, they are, again, they're the outsiders that we talk about. In they're, some ways, yeah. They're the irreligious or the poor, the outspoken. They're typically women. Yeah. You know, they're the, they're the not, they're the non-ruling class. Yes. Um, and and, uh, and uh, Salem uh, seems to start that way. Exactly. Yes. You know, you, yep. yeah, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne and, and Tituba right. fit the bill, right? Right. But, but that, that lens begins to widen right. rather quickly. Why does it widen in Salem? So, yeah. I mean, it's typical, right? Tituba as the, as the slave and, and Sarah Osborne kind of as the, the uh, woman of, of ill fame, perhaps because she married her indentured servant, and Sarah Good, that addled, distempered poor woman. Uh, traditionally, witchcraft is a working class crime, right? It's on the other side of the tracks, and it involves things like cursing and begging, and right? And right. So, what happens in Salem is, again, to me, it's the storm. It's all these forces that make people realize, especially when Tituba. Here's the thing the sad thing about Salem, there are, there are times throughout the spring and summer of 1692 where it could have come to an end, right? right? And one of them was, even when Tituba confesses, it could have come to an end. But when she says, I saw nine names in Satan's book that he wanted, where he wanted me to sign, that's telling you that there's, there's more witches out there. And, and, it, and it expands, right? And I think what happens is, again, initially, most of those early people are your typical types, right? But it does start to escalate. And I think that's evidence of, of the state of Massachusetts at the time. Um, I think it's evidence also to people being really scared and really angry, right? Mm -hmm. Witchcraft, interesting thing about witchcraft, historically we know from the work of Wolfgang Beringer that two of the major factors as to when witchcraft accusations take place anywhere is when there's horrifically bad weather, um, catastrophically bad weather destroying crops, right? In, a, in the pre-industrial agrarian society, you don't have crops, you don't eat, people die. Um, and you're looking for someone to hold responsible, right? Uh, so what do you do? You look to your government to help you out, to provide assurances, to take care of the problem. Well, if you have really horribly bad weather, uh, the worst weather of the Little Ice Age in 1690s, right? And combine that with, with weak central government, uh, this, this guy is governor who's never been in politics before. Um, that's when you have witchcraft outbreaks. And so I think people began to be, they didn't know who to turn to. They were, they were concerned. They'd had an interim government for several years. Now they have Governor Phipps. They were losing the war. Who, um, even the judges who are also the leading militiamen of the colony. One of the witchcraft judges 
Wade Winthrop is the commander-in-chief of the Massachusetts Army that's leading the war. Judge Bartholomew Gedney is the colonel of the Essex County Regiment. Um, you know, Judge Saltonstall is another colonel in the Essex Regiment. Most of these guys are captains or majors or higher in the militia. And so um, it's, it's, it looks like there's a complete inability for the government to do this, which I think in some ways why, is why people begin accusing their ministers, including their ministers' wives, including the wives of governor, um, saying like, you know, you folks may be the problem here, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you have is, uh, again, maybe it's that wealthy merchant, Philip English, who's an outsider, right? He's from the Channel Islands. His first language is French. He comes over here as Philippe Langlais, not Philip English, right? So again, it's those people who've let us down, the leaders of our community, and increasingly, uh, unlike very, very few outbreaks everywhere of anywhere of witchcraft, it goes, it climbs that social ladder because uh, people are seeking answers and they're not, they're not getting them. Powerful stuff, huh? It really is. Yeah. Well, so um, in one of the ways that it spreads is um, at least two covenant members of the church in Salem Village become accused. Yeah. Um, was there something about those people in so particular? Rebecca, Rebecca Nurse, um, I think is, again, is another, her case is another key turning point, right? And uh, why would this wonder, this, this elderly, sainted grandmother who's a member of the Salem Town Church, a Puritan saint, why would she be accused of witchcraft? Well, again, notice she's a member of the Salem Town Church, not the Salem Village Church, right? And um, in many ways, particularly um, Ben Ray has, has looked at this very carefully and talks about the fact that and what you see in 1692 is members of the Salem Village, the, the church members of Salem Village, sort of um, attacking outward against anyone who's not one of their own. And if you think about it, one of the first people they might attack would be um, a woman um, like uh, Rebecca Nurse, who attends Salem Village, but is a member of Salem Town Church. Aren't we good enough for you? Mm -hmm. Why not? Could it be the fact that you and your husband a few years ago took in a Quaker orphan um, when, when, uh, when, when his parents died and they were neighbors and friends of the nurses? Um, well, you know, we know you're charitable, good Puritan, godly folk, but, but why? Why, a, why a, a Quaker child? Hmm. Why not join Salem Village Church? Why does your husband, Francis Nurse, why is he one of the leaders of, of the faction that is trying to get Samuel Paris thrown out as minister in Salem Village? So they're, with Rebecca Nurse, they're, they're, even though she's a, a God-fearing Puritan, they're, 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 there are some questions right. about her orthodoxy, she right? She ticks a few of those boxes. That's right. And, and, and Martha Corey is another example, interesting example, right? She's a member of the Salem Village Church. Why would you go after one of your own? Well, let's look at Mrs. Corey a bit. Um, she's like the trophy wife of Giles Corey. She, she's uh, maybe 10 years younger than him, but, you know, she's, she's, uh, she's, she's like the, the younger wife who's all interested in joining the church. And um, at, at the same time, too, you know, her husband is not the nicest guy. I mean, he'd been uh, accused of setting arson on, his, on, the, on the house of his neighbor, John Proctor. Uh, um, and, uh, and he had also been convicted, really, of um, manslaughter uh, back in the 1670s of, of beating his simple-minded teenage servant um, to within an inch of his life. And then the fellow, poor fellow dies several days later. And they say, well, it isn't exactly murder, but, you know, okay, pay a fine, pay a fine. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that, and people remembered this in 1692, as a matter of fact, uh, no lesser a man than um, 
Thomas Putnam, wrote a letter to Judge Sewell the night before Giles Corey is pressed to death. And he says, so just in case you've forgotten, here's what Corey did back in the 1670s. So you shouldn't feel too guilty if you're really trying to press an answer out of him. So, but even worse about that too, to me it all comes back to religion, uh, ultimately. You know, here's the thing. I think so many of us who study the witch trials, myself included, are really kind of like social historians or cultural historians. And we see witchcraft as a social cultural phenomenon, a neighborly conflict. You know, my, my previous book, The Devil of Great Island, it's witchcraft and conflict in early New England. And it's all about neighborliness or lack thereof and property disputes and stuff like that. But you know what? It's not. It's really about religion. Witchcraft is a religious crime. And it, you have to realize that that is, that is what was behind most of it. So what did the Corys do to upset people in Salem Village in the church? Okay, here's what they did. Clearly, Martha wants Giles to become a church member too and be able to receive communion. Clearly, Martha wants Giles to be able to join her as a member of the Salem Village Church. But his, frankly, his reprobate past precludes that. Because particularly Salem Village has not accepted the halfway covenant. They still insist on full personal confession in front of the congregation. If you want to be not just someone attending meeting, which everyone has to do, but a member of the church, a saint, a congregant, because um, in the 17th century, a church is not a building. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's those, those holy true believers, right? The saints. You must stand up in front of the church membership and recite all your sins and beg forgiveness and say that God has spoken to you and you know now that you are going to be saved and you ask them to let you join them in, in fellowship, right? This is, a, this is a, a really tough act. And it's one reason why many churches, including in Salem town, why they were losing members and why the, the, the minister had said, no, we're scrapping that. You just come in and talk to me and if I decide that you're a good person and you're, you have a good record here, we'll make you a minister. I make, make you a member of the, of the congregation. So, and, and that's the halfway covenant, right? The halfway covenant is... Well, the halfway covenant is related to that. Halfway is another one of the loose things. The halfway covenant uh, is, is goes in... What happens is, is members of the second generation, 1630s, 40s, and 50s, they lack that religious fervor of their parents. Here's the thing. You know, in many ways, we all want to be like our parents. We want, we want to, to honor them. But we're different people than our parents. And, you know, if you came over, took your, your, your family uh, across the ocean for this to worship as you see fit, and it's everything all important to you, your kids, they may not quite believe that. They may want to. They want to be like you, but they, they, God hasn't spoken to them. What do you do? Well, you, unless God speaks to you and you want to confess that, you can't become a member of the church. So the halfway covenant allows the children of that second generation who have not become church members, allows their children to be baptized. Because you know what? If they're not baptized and they die, they can't go to heaven, right? Mm. Um, they're going to go to hell. Little babies in hell. This is not good. So we'll pass the halfway covenant. And you know what we're also going to do is many of these churches are going to loosen up church membership. We're going to allow um, people, we don't, aren't going to put them through that ordeal. Again, talk to the minister. If you're good, yes. Reverend Higginson in Salem, nearly, Salem Town, nearly left. He was willing to leave Salem if they didn't loosen up those rules and adopt the halfway covenant. Because otherwise they were going to lose all their members, all right? Not Salem Village. No, very strict. So interesting. The Corys use that loophole. Giles Corey becomes a member of the Salem Town Church. And even though they say, basically, despite his, his reprobate past, he's acknowledged his past as a sinner, and we accept him into, the, into our fellowship, into our covenant, right? So then imagine 
here's this fellow who people know to be who he is, and he's sitting right there and, 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 and um, uh, taking, partaking of the Lord's Supper with the other members of the Salem Village Church. Because as a member of the Salem Town Church, you know, like Rebecca Nurse, you can attend and you have full rights, really, you know, to, to receive communion. And so, oh, really, isn't that interesting, this, 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 this uh, trophy-hunting, social-climbing wife who claims she's a gospel woman, and look how she managed to get her, her husband, Giles Corey, arsonist, beater of servants, we've managed to get him into the church? Something's wrong here. Hmm. So I think, you know, and also too, but here's the thing to me, what's wrong with Salem Village Church? When Samuel Paris arrives... We have the beginnings of the, 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 the first, he's the first ordained minister in Salem Village, which means that he's allowed to give the sacraments, including the Lord's Supper, to baptize children. Uh, and the first year or so, he does a great job of using what we would call kind of like fire and brimstone sermons. You know, God is coming. He's terribly angry. Time to join the church now. It's not too late. Repent your sins, right? Or else. Mm-hmm. And that works for a year or so. But also, too, I, th- I think people, a lot of people who didn't accept this, and they look at the pure hypocrisy of this. Because here's the point. Before Salem Village, the original members of the Salem Village Church that signed the, 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 the creation of the church with Paris in 1689 had previously been members of the church, saints, in other towns. Other towns that had accepted the halfway covenant, that accepted these looser membership rules. So um, think about this. All of, the, all of these people had come in under these easier rules. By the way, as had people like Bartholomew Gedney and John Haythorne were two of the first members to come in under Higginson's loosened rules in Salem Town. So um, think about this. You have all of these people that Paris is convinced, nope, we're not going to accept the halfway covenant. We're not going to water down our rules for membership. We're going to, we have to be true believers here, right? Imagine someone like Giles Corey saying, yeah, but none of you people got in that way. You just talked to the minister and got in. You're going to make me stand up and, and blurt out all my sins? Bunch of hypocrites, yeah. right? Interesting that a number of ministers and members of their family were accused of witchcraft in 1692. Guess what? All of them are members of congregations that have accepted the halfway covenant and these looser, looser membership rules. Again, it's, it's not the economy stupid, it's religion stupid, mm-hmm. right? That's what this is. That's what this is all about. The temptation is always to take something so complex like what happened in 1692 and boil it down into a, a modern day yeah, analog right. and say, well, just, it's it's like conservatives versus liberals, you know, or right. whatever it is. Or just but, they just ate some moldy bread. That that's what did it, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. just moldy bread. Yeah. But uh, the it, the nuances are where the the, the flavor is and the texture. I mean, yeah. this is... Well, and to me, see, this is the thing, honestly, this is why historians love studying things like the Salem witch trials and witchcraft in general, because witchcraft, Salem and elsewhere, is indicative of strains in society, you know, economic, political, religious. And historians are always really interested in, in change. Mm-hmm. And, and clearly, there's so many different pieces to this puzzle, and it explains why there's a book written pretty much every year on it and why most of them are really, really good. And they all say in some ways very different different things, right? Right. And then each one of them is sort of a reflection of the society that the writers live in. Well, sure. I mean, you know, that's, is, that's what happens with history. Correct. This yeah. is, and you know, this is the thing. When I say, this is what we call historiography, right? Is that idea that the, the history you reflect maybe t- tells you more about your life and times than, than anything else, right? And so, for example, if you look at, you know, um, Carol Carlson, The Devil in the Shape of a Woman, that couldn't have been written 
before the women's movement in America, could it? Mm-hmm. And a hundred years from now, historians will look back and they'll know exactly when that book was written just by the title, right? right. And and to me, so I'm I'm clearly more of a child of Watergate. Why are they saying all those bad things about good President Nixon? I can't believe that, right? He's such a good guy. But clearly, to me, I think the Salem witch trials in many ways is symptomatic of, uh, it's the the first uh, mass cover-up in American history, the first complete failure of the government to protect the innocent. And I honestly think that libertarian strain that we have in our politics today on both the left and the right, this distrust of government, in some ways, you know, you might be able to trace it back to, to that. Because long before Watergate, um, people were worried about their government. And certainly in the Salem witch trials, uh, they were very worried about what's going on. In the election immediately after the witch trials, about half the members of the legislature were turned out in a very traditional Puritan society where they kept on reelecting the elders for year after year. And you know, things had changed. And clearly, um, the government had made, had made serious errors here that they weren't willing to acknowledge. And, and again, I think, you know, we, what that old joke? I'm, I'm from the government. I'm here. To, I'm here to help you, right? We think of that stuff as being very modern, or even if it. Oh well, maybe it goes back to the Crucible. Nope. The first, the first uh, book that was written, sort of making fun of the Salem witch trials, was published what in the late 1690s. So, it's a, it's a it's a it's a deep instinct that we have. Well, you talk about a cover up too, and and we have right at the end of it all, Phipps, basically prohibiting the publication. Of sure. things that went on, yeah. Um, obviously, he had, as we huh. talked about before, he had his household, you know, issues and his reputational yeah. issues. Did he have any particular goal in mind by stopping the publication? Sure, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's very fascinating because he arrives in May and he's out of touch with the British government until October when he finally writes to them for the first time. And in that letter, he said, "You know, well, we may have had a little problem with witchcraft." But not to worry, you know, no innocent lives were lost, and I've taken care of it. Oh, and by the way, if you don't believe me, here's a copy, which he literally sends one of the first copies of Cotton Mather's book with that letter. See, no innocent, no more than the eminent Cotton Mather says here that no innocent lives were lost. So situation normal, the government's in good stead here. You can trust me as governor, right? Um, and, you know... People may, be, people may question things, and, and if that happens, you know, things might unravel a bit here, so we wouldn't want that to happen. And since we have the truth here from Cotton Mather, well, you know, I've just issued this ban saying that, you know, we're not going to have anything more written on it because we have the truth from Cotton Mather, so do we need to do anything else? And basically, what Phipps realizes is if he doesn't put the screws down on complaint over the witch trials— um, it will it will go out of control. You know, he, he really sort of sees it breaking into this 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 wildfire. And what it will do is it will bring down his government. Um, and and if it does that, it really will be the end of his political life. Mm-hmm. And also, and frankly, um, others realize this will be the end of the Puritan experiment because. Again, going back, if you remember what happened before Phipps and before the interim government, you'd had Governor Andros in the Dominion of New England, who was really um, almost like a military dictator, right? And he was, a, he was an Anglican with the Church of England, and Puritanism no longer was special. Massachusetts was no longer special. It was part of a super colony that stretched from New Jersey to Maine. Um, and so they'd fought hard, and Phipps and Increase Mather had come back with this new charter, and it wasn't perfect. But it was a restoration of Puritan Massachusetts. And if we blow it this time, it is over. 
We will just become, my God, we might have Andros back in here as a military governor where he's picking people for juries and he's picking people for the legislature and we lose the rights of Englishmen. So he, he had to do everything he could from a personal point of view to, to end the trials, to prevent his wife from being charged, uh, to, to, for it to not be the end of his political career, to, to um, now him being, ironically, here's this guy who only a couple years before had become a Puritan, and now, incredibly, he's got to charge in on his white stallion and be the great saver of the Puritan movement, a guy who many people must have been shaking their heads saying, like, why on earth did we allow this guy to become governor? Because he's not one of us. And my God, look at the disasters he's creating. The war's gotten worse. The weather's gotten worse. Um, there are innocent people losing their lives. Why do we still follow this guy? We're still talking about 1692, right? Well, what else would we be talking about? Of course. <laughs> I, I, I shake my head as you're talking about this, where you have a particular group of religious people who feel that they're losing, they're losing control of the community that they've, they think they built. Yeah. And an unqualified leader swings in and suppresses the press to control the message yes. and yes. make sure that it all doesn't go away. It's that, yeah, that's kind of what happened in 1692. In 1692, yeah. In 1692. Yeah. And, no, but you know, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't try to make too many modern day parallels because I think you can probably read maybe more sure. into that than, than is there. But what's really clear is that, that uh, to me was that, and also too, is that, you know, the, 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 the best way to ensure that this sort of infamy and, and, and misstep by the government, the best way to ensure that people will never forget it is to try to cover it up. Right. Right? I mean, that's a lesson we did learn in Watergate. Well, and you know, so you mentioned uh, Cotton Mather's father, Increase Mather, yes. who was working with Phipps on yep. the new charter yep. and, and bringing all of that back. Yep. But it seems at the end, uh, Increase sort of takes a turn away from Phipps and his son. So here's the thing. Um, yeah, Increase Mather is really is the most influential minister in the colony. Mm -hmm. And of course, actually, and then and his wife is the daughter of John Cotton, the great Puritan minister as well, too. Mm -hmm. So it is like the super family of Puritanism. And they have Cotton and other sons and, and nephews and brothers and all these people who are at the sort of the center of the Puritan movement in Massachusetts. And, and Increase is the president of Harvard College. So yeah, um, he is Mr. Puritan, right? right. Um, and then he's, but he also, too, begins to realize in the late summer of 1692 that something's gone terribly wrong here. And, um, but he has to finesse this, right? Because on the one hand, uh, Stoughton and Phipps have asked his son Cotton to write this book, essentially to defend the colony. And here to me, you know, I think Cotton, I, I'm not a big Cotton Mather fan, but I think he gets a lot of bad press because he's, um, he really takes a bullet for the team when he writes, when he writes uh, Wonders of the Invisible, uh, Invisible World, right? Um, which is a, is a it's, it's so, uh, such an obvious sham uh, it's, he would have been a spin doctor today, right? Um, and he, and it, he discredits him long-term as a Puritan. So, but in the meantime, here's his father having to try to... So he, Cotton Mather's doing duty, trying to save the colony, trying to save Puritanism. But his father realizes we need to save lives. Mm -hmm. And how do I do that without without going again, being seen as splitting with my son. And he sort of pulls this political finesse where he also, he actually, you know, he writes the uh, sort of the preface to his, his son's book sort of saying, yep, good stuff here, son. Keep up the good work. Uh, and, but then if you read his book, his, it's going like, better that a hundred witches should live than one innocent person die, right? right? So it's clear that we need to do something about this. And, and I think 
most of us as historians have a hard time reconciling that, but I think it's easy to think of Increase Mather, the politician, but also Increase Mather, the father, right? You know, mm -hmm. um, and that he had a very he had a, he had a is a is a very thin needle to sort of sort of thread there to sort of say, yeah, I agree with you, Cotton. But I think we need to put the brakes on this, right? And in fact, actually, Cotton Mather had previously done that in the in the, earlier in the summer. You know, when he wrote the Return of the Ministers, when they said, when the judges are going like, so the spectral evidence, what do you think? And Cotton Mather, as the junior partner of the Mather firm, you know, very deferential. Oh. Um, yes, uh, thank you for asking, and here's the reply of the ministers, and we think that you need to be really careful when you use spectral evidence, right? Because you need other evidence, and clearly it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's dicey stuff. But you know what? You guys are doing a great job because you're the leaders of our colony, and we respect and revere you, and just keep up the good work. Huh? Again, it depends on how you want to read that, just like increase in Cotton Mather. So they're, they're very political animals, and they're trying to be deferential, but they're also trying to go like, oh, do you really know what you're doing here? Watch out, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, and I think Mather, increase Mather does a good job of, of doing that. Of, and also, too, I think really he's the one, I don't think Phipps splits with him. I think Phipps, I think it's increase Mather, when, once he turns, that, that clearly Phipps says, okay. And then again, too, yeah, again, by the way, Phipps comes back from try to defend the frontier in Maine, and he writes this letter, and of course, in the letter, he openly lies. And he says, you know, I came back and I'd left Stoughton in charge and things just, all these people accused of witches and I never, sh you know, why'd I let him do this? And it's all his fault. Phipps had been in Massachusetts almost that whole time, right? He could have put a stop to it. But again, it wasn't politically expedient. Right. But when he comes back and there are more people in jail and he hears an increased Mather's wife and his wife have been accused, okay, we're putting the brakes on this immediately. You're right, increase. It's coming to a halt. The court of Oyer and Terminer must fall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned Stoughton. Um, uh, he's he's one this, of my least favorite people. Well, there, there does, he's Stoughton. not there a lot. You know, in the in the story, he seems no. to be the most absent of it all. But but he's he's the leader of these judges, right? Yeah, he's William William Stoughton is a ghost character. A friend of mine, I've had people in the past try to do this, and a friend's trying to do it now to try to write a biography of Stoughton, and I'm not sure if it's possible right. because. Believe me, it was bad enough with Phipps, who was an illiterate governor who left almost no records. But Stoughton, there's no family papers, there's no nothing. So uh, uh, he's, he, he, and what's amazing to me about Stoughton is, again, too, I think, here's the problem. I really think the judges like Stoughton were filled with incredible self-loathing. Um, and Stoughton had been a minister, right? Oh. He'd been a minister in England back, and then he, he's basically kicked out after, with the Restoration because he was a Puritan, and he comes back to New England, and he, come, and he comes back, and he's, he's hailed as, as this wonderful leading figure of the colony. And um, he's asked by several towns, please be our minister. Please, please, please be our minister. And he says, no, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of being a minister. Um, I, I can't do it. And, and I think, again, I, I, I think, um, I think there's, these guys are, 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 have troubled souls. Uh, Sewell, uh, Samuel Sewell as well, too. You can see his struggles. He doesn't want to become a member of the church because he doesn't think he's worthy. My God, the guy was a brilliant student at Harvard. He could recite the, ch the, the, the Bible backwards and forwards. Read his, his two-volume diary, and you know he's an incredibly devout Puritan, but he thinks he's not worthy. And I think Stoughton had some of that sort of concerns about his, his soul and his worthiness. Um, Interesting guy. He never marries. This is almost unheard of in Massachusetts in the 17th century. Um, does that mean is he committing sin? Is he is is he heavy, is he fornicating with the maids and he's self-loathing because of that? Or we don't we don't know 
what it was. But I think, uh, so instead, he is driven, he is absolutely driven to stamp out witches, right? He sees that is the big sin, and you're right, he is the leader of the course, but he doesn't show up much, does he? He doesn't lead much of a paper trail at all, even as, as acting governor. But it's clear that the judges are deferential to him. And when he sets the stage, and, and, and when he, you know, in, interrogates the jury uh, with Rebecca Nurse and says, did you, didn't, did you hear her answer to this? Why didn't you ask her to follow up on this? Maybe you should think about this verdict again. They're all taking their cues from Stoughton. And to me, that's part of the tragedy, too, here is all of these judges, for the most part, aside from really from, from, from Stoughton and from Sewell, these guys are all related by marriage. They're all in-laws of each other. They're all part of this wealthy merchant class. They all think like each other. And once Stoughton takes the lead, they all fall into place. And, then, and the only one I really always wondered about is Samuel Sewell, right? Hmm. Because here's this really thinking guy who's the youngest, who spends much of his, his remaining years later on in life of trying to atone for the sin of the Salem witch trials and, and passing that, that duty on to his sons after he dies. And then I, the answer to that, though, is, too, again, it's family because his wife is Samuel Paris's first cousin. So imagine that. So, and known each, they would have known each other in Boston. One of the few people that when, when Paris moves in from Barbados that he would have known would have been the Sewell family, right? And so imagine when, when, when Samuel shows up as one of the witchcraft judges, and smart guy, he's probably saying, I don't know about this, right? What's going on here? But imagine when he, when he meets Samuel Paris, and he's, and he's saying, you know, cousin, cousin, thank God you're here. Right? I mean, we don't, we, I'm imagining this. We don't know, but right. thank God you're here. Look, look at my daughter. Look at, look at our daughter. Look at our niece. Thank God you were here. Help them find the witches, end the torments. And you know, Samuel Sewell, this, this th- very thoughtful, deliberative guy, I'm looking after my family. Mm-hmm. That comes first. I, I believe, I believe my cousin, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it was his wife's cousin. It's cousin, it's family. Mm-hmm. I must help the Paris family. And it's only, I think, too late that, that Sewell realizes that they've all been just, just been, been, been taken in by, by, this, by this incredible storm. You know, I don't, I don't see Paris as being evil either. I think he was, he was, he was a genuinely troubled guy um, who was, 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 had demons of his own, right? Um, I don't think he's trying to, you know, point the finger of accusation of certain people, even his political opponents. But I do think he's a guy who sees his political opponents as being inspired by Satan, right? Well, and at the same time, this all begins in his house. Correct. You know, and so that he must exactly. have felt this, this overwhelming sense of, I mean, as a minister, yes. he would have had a Shame. duty as a minister, yes. but then, but then now it's my house. I, that duty is, is now paramount. I have to. Correct. And, and but even too, though, think about this, the devil only attacks people at, to afflicts them or makes, or tries to get them as witches because of, was believed because of some imperfection in their soul. Frankly, this would get to the gender issue. This is why women were more susceptible because they were considered the weaker vessel. Mm. My, my, my wonderful wife and two very strong daughters would disagree and so would I. Mm. But, right, this is the time. Um, and so, so clearly that's, you know, um, when Paris's daughter and niece are the first to be afflicted, Paris must have been riddled with self-doubt and, and shame. How could this happen to my, my family? What, what, what have I done? What have my wife and I done to, 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 to do this? Clearly, we must have done something wrong, right? Mm-hmm. How have we invited Satan into our household? 
And of course, very quickly he realized, well, well, we didn't do it. It was it was our neighbor, Mrs. Sibley, and uh, and she got Tituba and John Indian to do the counter magic and the witch's cake, and it's her fault, right? The devil hath been raised, mm-hmm. as Richard Trask surely showed you in that in that book, right? Mm-hmm. It was Mary Sibley. It wasn't it wasn't my daughter. Right. We deflect. <laughs> Tell me about the devil. In the, in the world of well, I mean, we have how, how many years do we have? Tell know, you about right? the devil. Right? We have, I mean, we have our own modern day view of sure. it. You know, depending on what your religious backgrounds yes. are as well. Yeah. But but it, it seems that in Salem in 1692, they had a very particular vision of the devil. Yeah, what's ma- amazing is in the late 17th century there in Salem and elsewhere, the devil has this very corporeal form. I mean, you know, he 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 takes physical appearance. It can be a bird. It can be a dog. It it can be the guy with the the pointy tail, right, and the horns, um, and and he walks the earth, right. He's not just he's not just in hell, or um, he he's here, and he is he is a physical presence, and that's something that is that is, and also he wants you to sign his book. This is something that is very Puritan, very mm-hmm. Massachusetts, a highly literate society. Yeah. This is something you don't see in other places where, and, and also by the way, very legally, it's very contractual. So I've got this contract here for you to sign. If you could take a look at my book here, and if you could just sign in blood here, we'll we'll be. We'll have a deal, right? It's, it's, a, it's a very Puritan form of, of, of Satan, but he's a very real presence. Right. And again, if you think about it too, sort of cavorting amongst the Native Americans and the French, uh, the French Catholics on the frontier. And that's, of course, um, where, where we have one of the early sightings uh, of, of, of Satan in the Salem witch trials is, you know, oh, he's up in, he's up in, he was at Casco Bay. And that's where I first met him, right? Because that's where you'd expect to run into him. But again, physically meeting Satan. Right. Something that by the early 18th century, you know, Satan becomes this very sort of distant force, like by the second, by the first great awakening in the 1720s, Satan no longer walks the earth. Right? But in Sa- but in Salem 1692, he can knock on your door. He's very, he, absolutely. He can be, he can, he can be um, tormenting Tituba in the, in the lean-to of the Paris parsonage, telling her, I'm going to, I'm going to hurt you if you don't hurt the Paris kids, Right. And so that, and so, and again, if you think about this, this is a very real, imminent, scary, horny beast mm-hmm. who is who who is here to get you, and uh, and again, I think it's 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 a you know it's it's a very terrifying kind of kind of image as opposed to even by the 18th century, you know, we're both where uh, you know yeah Satan yeah that's Satan's this force right, but he he's not he's not going to torture you and pinch you and in person yeah. Obviously, you've written a book on this. You've spoken prolifically about it and studied it for years. But if if there was one thing that you hoped people walked away with <laughs> out of the plethora of things they could walk away with, um, if, if there's one thing that, or maybe maybe we can frame sure. it as if there's one thing that it means to you, the, sure. the 1692. So, isn't. I mean, to me, it is the ultimate sort of cautionary tale. Um, and, and that I, you know, I, and unfortunately, it's a sad story and it doesn't have a happy ending because I think in some ways... As long as we have prejudice and hatred, um, we're going to have some form of witchcraft, right? We're going to have we're going. It, it's a question of of treating others differently and scapegoating. And you know, the way I look at it too is, you know, I think here's the thing to me is what what bothers me so much is so many people say how ignorant people were back then. How could they possibly believe in witches and that they were real? Well, first off, remember in 1692, witches were real. Everybody believed in them. University ministers, doctors of theology, governors, popes, witches are real. The only kind of serious question is, is 
Who are they? How do we figure out who they are? And how do we stop them? Because they could be anybody. It could be you. It could be me. It could be, it could be one of our children. Uh, could be could be a witch. They look just like us, right? Well, but, but here's the thing. These people want to destroy your society, uproot your faith, wipe out your family, kill you and everyone in your hometown and in your, in your nation, wherever that is. We have to stop them. Well, how the heck do we do this if we don't know who they are and what they look like? Well, we start looking at people who are a little bit different. How about that person that may worship God a little bit differently than me? Or that person sitting next to church to me who had this odd accent, right? Or maybe was wearing a different sort of hat than I wear. Um, or, uh, you know, we have to start looking and look somewhere because if we don't start profiling and looking for people who are different than us, they're going to do us in. Um, so here's the thing to me. If you switch the word witch and terrorist, you will understand just how difficult the task was in 1692 because it's the kind of task and trouble we face today, uh, you know, where we know um, that we have enemies in our midst, and if they would, they would destroy everything we believe in. They would destroy us. How much of our liberties, of our faith, of our, of our good nature, of our trust of others, of our desire to help strangers no matter how different from us, how much of that are we willing to sacrifice to try to save everything that we believe in? We are very hard on the people of 1692. I think if you look back on, on, our, on our perspective in 300 years, People may be hard on us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know? um, and again, despite the best intentions of people to create a good, orderly, godly society, bad things happen. And I think the thing is, you know, it, the, to me, the, you know, the lesson is if we, can just, if we can just try to be understanding and kind to people, you know, mm-hmm. and try to get through it as best we can, but, and try to look towards the, the good in human nature and try to avoid the, those sort of base reflexes as much as possible. Yeah. But, you know, it's... It's, it's, it's not a happy ending, and we just, we, just, we just hope people learn from it. This episode of Unobscured was executive produced by me, Matt Frederick, and Alex Williams, with music by Chad Lawson and audio engineering by Alex Williams. The Unobscured website has everything you need to get the most out of the podcast. There's a resource library of maps, charts, and links to Salem document archives online, as well as a suggested reading list and a page with all of our historian biographies. And as always, thanks for supporting this show. If you love it, head over to applepodcasts.com unobscured and leave a written review and a star rating. It makes a huge difference for the show's growth. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>